Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Make it stop. <laughs> yes, that's the music from Poor Things. One of the things we're going to talk about, one of the not-so-poor things we're going to talk about uh, is John Stewart, his return to The Daily Show once a week. Imagine that. You used to do, you know, four or so shows a week, and then you only do one. I mean, that could be a thing. It could be like more people could start doing that. Uh, all right, so, but we will begin with Poor Things, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. Uh, it has become a, quite a big hit and also quite a bit of Oscar bait. The theme of the movie is that babies want to be paid for sex. No, that's probably not the theme of the movie, but it's <laughs> it's the closest <laughs> I could possibly come. Uh, joining us is, is uh, first of all, Raquel Benedict, who claims to be, she doesn't claim to be, why does it say this in the copy every time? She is the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. Uh, she's the host of the Right Good podcast. I want to spell that R-I-T-E space. G-U-D, so you can look it up. Sam Haddleman works in music public relations and hosts the Sam Haddleman Show at Radio Free Brooklyn. I don't have to spell any of that. Uh, and uh, we are now indeed about to talk about uh, Poor Things. It's based on the 1992 novel Poor Things, episodes from the early life of Archibald McCandless, M.D., Scottish public health officer by Alistair Gray. I feel like I would probably like that novel better than I like this movie. Uh, and uh, it is, in fact, sort of an X-rated Frankenstein movie. It's about uh, a mad scientist played by Willem Dafoe who transfers the brain of a baby uh, into the body of an adult woman, the adult woman being played by Emma Stone, uh, and hilarious complications. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious complications ensue. I mean, I guess people think this movie is really funny. But um, all right, so let's go. Um, and Raquel, maybe you can get us started here. Uh, I know you and Sam both like this movie, which is fine. It's fine. Uh, uh, say a little bit about you know what it says to you. Well, I, I I know that the premise, if you're taking it literally, is deeply, deeply distasteful and upsetting. But I read it as a, a way of approaching the way that women in society are simultaneously hypersexualized and infantilized in that it gives us a character who literally is both of those things. Like she is this hypersexual creature and she is literally a baby and how to engage with the world in that. So I found it extremely compelling in that way of, of approaching that very strange dynamic and approaching the issue of feminine sexuality in a way that is deeply, deeply uncomfortable. And as as upsetting as the movie might get, some of the ideas in it, well, that is the reality for a lot of women. Um, and I've, I've noticed that a bunch of people in my writing group who connected with it the most were either people who were on the autism spectrum who said that they really felt like they identified with the character in a big way because in some ways she's this brilliant scientist and in other ways she's very childlike and innocent and incredibly blunt and doesn't understand social mores. And for a lot of trans women, they 
that I that I know that they've said they felt a real kinship with the character because here she is in this grown adult woman body, but she's childlike. She doesn't know how to navigate the world as a woman, and she's sort of learning how weird it is to be a woman. Yes. Um, so uh, what we'll do uh, before we go to Sam, just to give people kind of a, a taste of this, uh, we'll hear a little bit of Emma Stone as Bella Baxter, the character that we're discussing right now, uh, and the mad scientist, so to speak, is uh, Dr. Godwin Baxter, played by Willem Dafoe, uh, whom Bella usually addresses as God. You know, like short for Godwin, but also not. This is A1. May I have a moment to value time, dear God? Of course, Bella. I wanted to tell you big news. Bella's dizzy with excitement. What is it? Tonight, at midnight, I secretly run away with one Duncan Wedderburn. What? You will wish to stop me. I shall stop you. You hold Bella too tight. I must set forth into waters. We can travel, you, me, and Max, whom I will remind you, you are betrothed to. I will marry Max as he seems right. For that, but first, I shall adventure on Duncan Wedderburn, who I think has little of damage to me, but will be interesting as well. I can't let you go. Kiss me and set me forth. If you do not, Bella's insides shall turn rotten with hate. Hate? Hate. We should say that Duncan Witterburn, uh, who she's about to set forth with, is played by Mark Ruffalo, and Max, to whom she is betrothed, is played by Rami Youssef. So, Sam Hadleman, uh, take it from there. Uh, just uh, give us your initial impression uh, of this movie. Yeah, for sure. I didn't know anything about this movie before I went into it. I was like walking past the movie theater, and I was like, oh, I should probably go see a movie today. And then I ended up seeing poor things, and like, that's a really shocking 15 minutes like into the film, like trying to piece together what's going on. As as Raquel said, um, the concept's a little off-putting, but I saw Saltburn like the week before, so nothing could really phase me. Um, I really did love how uncomfortable it was, like whether it was the concept or the experiences that she went through. I really appreciate how they depicted becoming comfortable, like becoming comfortable in your own skin. Um, it was a weird movie, but I really liked the nuts and bolts of it. Like, I think the actual like substance was good. Um, I appreciated how it was more of a, a show, not tell movie, whether it's like talking about her own experiences, you know, relearning womanhood and like how to exist in the world as a woman, which feels weird for me to co-sign, but I really like how they depicted that. And then like the ills of men in society. I thought Mark Ruffalo did a great job at depicting like that, that, uh, false good guy narrative that you see amongst men today. Um, I thought that that was great. Um, and I really loved how it depicted her character development, especially in discovering her own sexuality and like coming into a woman and like relearning the world for better or for worse and the characters she meets along the way. Um, yeah. And I thought it was a cool way to like, especially as like, you know, the perspective that I was watching it from, it was a good reminder of what women go through and explainer. I learned like, I don't know. It, it made me think a lot about a lot of societal and interpersonal situations that women might be put into that I didn't think about fully fleshed out. And it was cool to see it depicted on screen. And I just liked how like odd the world was. It was very like Tim Burney. Um, I really liked Willem Dafoe. Uh, Con, I know you didn't love Mark Ruffalo, but like I said, I thought that he was a perfect dunce. 
which which it's tough to say because apparently I'm his doppelganger. That's like the celebrity I always get is Mark Ruffalo. Yeah, I can so sort of see that. Like, yeah. No, I, right? I, and I love Mark Ruffalo. I really do. I just felt that this, you know, some of these parts and that one in particular are kind of cartoonish. Uh, and I don't think, I mean, obviously he's been playing the Hulk for a really long time, which is literally cartoonish. But um but he does a lot with the Hulk, you know, he finds a lot in there. I don't, I felt like this because of the way that this was kind of a two-dimensional character, there wasn't too much he could do with it other than just, you know, do what the script said. I, I, I wasn't, I guess it, he's got a fourth Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor, so I'm in a minority about that too. Yeah, I mean, you know, you said it's show, not tell. And, and Raquel, it's certainly show, you know, and it's certainly show an awful lot of Emma Stone. Um, there is full frontal nudity in this um, I was occasionally starting to think this is, I guess, in, in, in a different context or with a different understanding of what was happening. This seemed like a rather exploitative movie as well, but uh, that's not how people are reading it. Um, and I also do want to say just, you know, I, I don't want to talk too much about my own thoughts about this, but I really love the first 45 minutes of this movie. I, I love Victorian mise-en-scene, you know. I love, and I love weird Victorian stuff, and there are these, you know, chimera you know chicken dogs and duck dogs and various other things that that godwin has been making in his laboratory and i like them quite a bit too uh i just at the end of 45 minutes suddenly realized i had another hour and 35 minutes to go with this movie that didn't really pull me in all that much but you know could we maybe say a little bit more about um raquel about this idea like one thing that I've encountered, particularly when I've expressed on the one occasion when I expressed my displeasure with this movie, was I was sort of told I was not getting the feminist edge of this movie. And I mean, you've already kind of suggested what that might be. Although maybe you could say a little bit more, because I, I think a lot of people hearing about this, and I mean, I don't think we've really said that one of the steps that Bella takes uh, while kind of semi-marooned in Paris was she, she immediately becomes a sex worker in a very you know, Victorian-looking brothel uh, with the wonderful Karen Hunter playing, or is that, is, is it Kat? Um, what are you, that's a terrific actress. I'll look up her name uh, as the madam. Um, and, you know, I don't know. Watching these really, you know, grubby old men back her up against a wall and penetrate her, I just was thinking, yeah, feminist, I'm not really getting that right now. But say a little bit more about how that decodes for you. I mean, for me, I don't read it necessarily as a depiction, as as an endorsement, but just this is kind of how it is sometimes if, when you're a woman, even or especially when you're really, really young and naive, you have a lot of gross older men kind of chasing you around and you're not really sure how to how to contextualize it or how to absorb it. And And I think it's more in retrospect, looking back on it with the experience and knowledge of an adult, you realize how warped that actually was and how messed up it actually was but as a young person you go oh well this is kind of weird but i guess this is what the world is so so for me it yeah it's not necessarily like let me get on a soapbox and preach about feminism and women's sexuality but it's sort of feminist in a way of showing well this is kind of how it is for women and this discomfort and queasiness is how it is. If anything, I don't think it's dark enough. <laughs> I, I think the real world gets even darker in the way that Emma Stone's character somehow manages to come out of it unscathed struck me as a little bit too like fantasist, but I, I found it really compelling and uh, without giving too much away about myself, relatable in the, in the way that she, she's this very strange, naive person with suddenly a very 
adult female body going out into the world and that the world wants this thing from her in in ways that are pretty gross and and pretty unpleasant um and i don't really see that many depictions of it yeah that really go want to go there they always want to sort of make it more euphemistic or a little sweeten it up or in other ways go a little bit more like melodrama but just dealing with the absolute weirdness and confusion of it, I, I don't see depicted very often. So for me, I, I find this movie is a bit feminist in that it does explore this very real aspect of womanhood in a way that a lot of filmmakers really want to shy away from. You know, I like the point that you made before about, and I'll sort of uh, swap places with you in a way, uh, about the, you, know, you said it could have been darker, maybe it should have been darker. It's almost too easy the way she moves from one state to another. Uh, and um, I think that's true. I mean, if, if I were going to defend the movie, and I might on this basis, I might see that there is something very baby logic about that or toddler logic. I mean, we're seeing this brain, this very baby-like brain develop kind of extraordinarily quickly. Uh, and But I think what's happening also happens is, you know, babies and toddlers, they just want one thing and then they want another thing and then they want another thing. And, you know, Raquel, it feels like this movie kind of does that. It's like, okay, Bella not want to do that anymore. And boom, the movie just goes someplace else. <laughs> yeah, it, it it's that. I mean, it's weird to call a movie like this unrealistic because it is a fantasy. It is a weird, surreal movie. So to, to say, oh, well, I didn't think it was realistic how easily she got away from her abusive ex. Well, I mean, this is not a realistic movie. This is a movie where a Dr. Frankenstein, you know, a man needs a tube to eat and and starts belching up magic bubbles. And it, it is it is a very <laughs> odd sort of film. Um, yeah, Defoe's got a Frankenstein <laughs> junior, too. It's like his father, you know, experimented on him. Um, so Yeah, which I, I yeah, found kind of interesting. I kind of wondered if the whole Defoe character was a little bit about this sort of rational male, like... If, if you're a woman, you're sort of in this world kind of created and governed by what is portrayed as male rationality, and that's kind of considered to be a good thing. And Willem Dafoe, even though he does love her, is, is a creepy, weird man. Even though he really <laughs> does love her, he is, he is a weird little dude, and his brilliant, rational scientist father was an absolute monster. Yes, absolutely. We know, we know that anyway. So, Sam... And I want both of you to talk about this. I mean, even I, as something of a poor things doubter, uh, would have no trouble with Emma Stone getting the best uh, act actress nominee uh, Oscar award uh, in about ten days. I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think Lily Gladstone's getting it. But this is a really remarkable performance where she really does have to exist at kind of multiple levels of development all at once. She has to be plausibly sexually ravenous and plausibly childlike at the same time. And uh, it does seem, Sam, as though she she delivers on that. Oh, absolutely. And it was so, like, I haven't really tuned into Emma Stone. I mean, I saw her on The Curse. I remember her in Easy A. She was kind of like the it girl actor of my teens. And like to see her in like such a serious dynamic role was awesome. Like having to balance that like childlike curiosity with like sexual openness and like basically develop her character throughout the entire film was incredibly impressive. And I, I'd like to speak to Raquel's point too. That, that's what I was trying to say is that like it was an uncomfortable movie and because it like really brought you through the journey step by step. And it's something that like, you know, obviously, like I grew up with like a lot of women friends and like stuff like that. Like I've seen it, I've experienced it, but it's different than to, like 
see a dynamic that you know interpersonally like on a big screen and yeah it's uncomfortable like it's not in a neat little box but that's what i liked that it was like a show not tell movie like it like played out these like theories in like real time rather than like was a soapbox or a lecture or like a discourse film like it was much more like i said nuts and bolts which i which i really appreciated but emma stone's performance was absolutely outstanding i love to see that trope of like actors he might have known in like cheeky comedy films doing like avant-garde a24 grad school movies you know what i mean like i love that pipeline yeah and actually um i mean this isn't even stone's first dance with with lanthimos she did the favorite too right i don't know i don't know if she's done other things with him i'm also told by mcpants that she's actually nominated for two oscars in a way because uh best picture it's also nominated for best picture and she is a producer on the movie would probably be named in that nomination uh and she's also i'm just being told going to be in lanthimos's next movie too uh lanthimos directed the favorite uh the lobster uh, and a bunch of other movies as well. And, and you know, I mean, so, Raquel, I'll just continue to play kind of devil's advocate here or something, or maybe angel's advocate. Uh, and, I mean, one thing that also bothered me a little bit about the, this movie, I think it could cross, and it's sort of a, a complaint I have with Lanthimos generally, is there's a self-conscious artiness to us to it. All those sort of weird, distorted keyhole shots, you know, uh, in this movie I'm thinking, why are they there? Does he just think that looks cool to do that? Um, or is there some actual reason? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I think people who like the movie feel like all of that stuff knits together into a, a, a very integrated whole, but but not a keyhole. Uh, but I'm not sure. I don't know. Make the case that it does, I guess. I mean, I, I know you have to have a sort of surreal visual character to the movie in order to be able to take the story as it is. If it was shot in a way that was very naturalistic and realistic, it would just be horrific. It would not work. It would I'd be watching it just wanting to throw up the entire time. But you have to kind of use these this sort of visual style and this kookiness to sort of pull us into it and realize, okay, this is this is not real. This is almost kind of a warped fairy tale. Take it as a warped fairy tale. Do not take this as literally the world. Take it as a distorted image of the world. And I, I don't, I don't know about the keyhole shots. Yeah, maybe he just really likes keyhole shots. But I find that a little endearing sometimes of a filmmaker who's putting this in. I just like doing this. Like, why does it does it symbolize anything? No, I just like him. <laughs> I guess. That's All right. A, I guess that's good for you. Yeah. Yes. Good for you. He's having fun. Yeah. And I mean, Sam, you mentioned Tim Burton too. I mean, movie makers do have particular aesthetic styles. They develop signatures that become, you know, part of what we either like or dislike about them. And, and so maybe I'm I'm complaining about the wrong thing. Um, you know, this is just the way that he likes his movies to look. I, I don't know. But your thoughts, Sam? Yeah, I, I like I said, I wasn't really familiar. I didn't know I didn't know the guy's game before I went in. And so I was just like, what is going on? And then I saw the lobster and I was like, man, what is going on? And I guess that's kind of his thing is like making the audience do that. But it was like, I know I see like a through line of really serious topics that need to be handled with care, being able to do that through the lens of kind of abstract filmmaking. Like it lends itself to like take these topics really seriously, but not too seriously where I would feel a little icky. Like, Saltburn, I felt icky. Like, I had to take a shower after Saltburn. Poor things made me want to go, like, read an essay or something. You know what I mean? Like, it was just, like, a little different, which I which I appreciated. I, I, I liked that. It, like I said, there's nothing I hate more than a movie that's trying to make a big point 
and it feels like a classroom like this felt more like an improv class like a like a theater teacher going off like having too much fun with the school play you know what i mean i, I like that a little more than like a classroom yeah um and we we could probably wrap it up there. I know exactly what you're saying there, though. And well, anyway, I, we'll we'll wrap up there. We're gonna uh, take a little break. We're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about the return of John Stewart. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. You know, uh, one thing that I neglected to say about poor things, uh, and it'll kind of blend into what, I'm, what we're about to talk about, but uh, McPants, uh, our producer, uh, put in my notes a list of the worldwide box office grosses for this year's 10 Best Picture nominees. Uh, and Poor Things is number four on the list behind Barbie Oppenheimer and Killers of the Flower Moon. And it's in nine figures. It's over $100 million, uh, in, in box office grosses. Uh, the thing that really made my, my chin hit my chest is that Maestro has $383,000 in worldwide box office grosses, which is like, you know, I bet you Bo is Afraid has more ticket sales than that. That's really shocking. Uh, but another thing that has maybe uh, provided less of a surprise in terms of its popularity is the return of Jon Stewart to The Daily Show. Uh, the Daily Show premiered in 1996 uh, as a weeknight comedy show uh, about the news. Uh, the 29th season uh, of The Daily Show premiered uh, this year uh, on February 12th. Uh, Jon Stewart is uh, kind of the defining host of this show. For, he did it from 17 years, from uh, 1999 to 2015. Uh, and he has returned this season to um, to host on Monday nights only. And before we get some thoughts from the panel, uh, let's hear a little bit about what that so- of what that sounds like. This is from the very first episode of this season, B1 Cat. We're not suggesting neither man is vibrant, productive, or even capable. But they're both stretching the limits of being able to handle the toughest job in the world. What's crazy is thinking that we're the ones, as voters, who must silence concerns and criticisms. It is the candidate's job to assuage concerns, not the voter's job not to mention them. And look, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be cruel. I didn't want to, I didn't want to have to do this on my first day. Come, come over here. <laughs> Look at me. <laughs> Look what time hath wrought. <laughs> Look, 
the kids a treat of the lunar surface here. Look at this. I'm tw like 20 years younger than these <laughs> This. Look at this. They wish. All right, so, um, and obviously what he's doing is just really kind of letting them come in close on his face while he's doing this. One of the problems with playing a John Stewart clip is he does so much with his own face, so much with facial expressions and things like that. Um, and But anyway, we need to talk a little bit about this. So uh, Raquel Benedict, uh, we should say who our panelists are once again, uh, but Raquel Benedict, who is, in my personal opinion, uh, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction and is the host of the Right Good po Podcast, Sam Haddleman, who works in music public relations and hosts the Sam Haddleman Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. So Raquel, get us started uh, on the return of Jon Stewart. I, I mean, I loved The Daily Show back in the day during the Bush years. I I love Jon Stewart, but I feel like he's I, – I feel like I'm watching a very tired old man when I'm watching his return. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I'm not sure his shtick has changed. There's that, like, irreverent kind of snarky Daily Show shtick that – hits differently when you're sort of old and gray and very tired. And I'm not saying that to be like ageist, but I feel like you kind of need a different approach or, or to approach it as a different way as, sort of, as, you know, as an elder, as someone who has experienced more and, and has a sort of wisdom, the sort of daily show delivery feels like it's a little bit more for a kind of younger, more energetic kind of fiery person. And I don't really see the fire in him and and while i do like him and i and i do respect him as a comedian and i think he's a terrific interviewer i feel like a little bit of the return might be this this desire to return to a time that might have felt a little simpler or or maybe a a return to the obama era or something and politically like you kind of can't go back to that and i kind of suspect that this type of liberalism didn't really get us where we need to go um, things things do feel feel really dire and apocalyptic now, and I, so I understand wanting to turn back the clock, but you can't. I mean, you know, this is not an issue. First of all, I would like to enter into the record, Your Honor, that I'm eight years older than John Stewart. Um, so, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so I'm not the least bit hurt by what you said, but um, the um, this has been dealt with on the show quite a bit. It's not like they're dodging this bullet. You know, they're 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 taking it right on the chest, and they've done several bits. They did a really funny one. We would play it, but it's there's so much face acting in it by both people, by John Stewart and Dulce Sloan, where she starts talking about Bush and Biden, but she just starts saying a whole bunch of things that apply to him too. You know, you know like yeah, you went away, you had this job, now they want it back again, and and his face is just kind of falling. In the you know, she's do something new, do something new. Um, they're not, a, they're not dodging this, nor are they dodging. I mean, and, and, you know, Raquel, one of the things that happened after the first show was Stuart was getting hammered on, on X and I'm sure in other places as well for 
kind of equating or at least showing some commonalities between Trump's decay uh, and Biden's degeneration. Uh, and there was uh, there were a lot of people saying that was a false equivalence and how dare he and, you know, Trump is so much worse. Oh, uh, that was my favorite part of the show so yeah, that, that I saw. I really loved that bit. Yeah, turn that up, bro. That was, that was sick. That was dope. I was like, God bless. Someone saying something that doesn't make me want to like scream into a void. Yeah. So, yeah, Sam, maybe talk a little bit about this. I mean, it, I, I also feel as though we've maybe entered a time where even with comedy, people want to see their sensibilities reinforced or, or even kind of echoed back at them. Uh, and he's not really doing that. Yeah, it's just nice to see common sense on TV. Like, I, I grew up on John Stewart. I can remember the exact clip. It was uh, him and Bill O'Reilly. I used to watch those shows, like, religiously. And it was about Common going to the White House and how he supported Asada Shakur and uh, man, I, John, when I first saw John Stewart, it was so comforting to see something on the news that didn't make me want to scream. Because, you know, like I'm a, even at like a 14 year old age, like I was like maybe not exactly in the box. And like to see him come back and be in tip top shape, like comedy is a different bag than like music or sports. It's not like watching Jordan play for the Wizards or, you know, like Jay-Z being like 50 coming back. You know what I mean? Like, even though that's great, it's comedy is a different bag it's like a, it's more of like a timeless art to me at least personally and especially right now it feels like a late night has been just something skewed for my parents like my 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 dad loves jimmy fallon and stuff my mom loves jimmy fallon and it's like not really it just plays into these political themes that they hear on cnn or msnbc and like low-hanging trump jokes of the past eight years it is beautiful to like finally engage with something that like doesn't make me feel like i'm the only person in the room that knows what's going on like you know what i mean like <laughs> it, it was cool to see him be like hey man joe biden's kind of old like he's kind of an old dude like yeah that that's common sense bro and it feels like nobody is like <laughs> adhered to that in the news like they're a little scared so it's nice to see someone just like go at it and the nuanced discussions that Stewart's able to hold especially after all his years of you know working in congress trying to get bills passed for people uh the firefighters 9-11 like he is just like so sharp at the moment it's honestly i i feel blessed i feel like we rarely ever get something like this like so pure and good to come back well there you know there i think was a feeling raquel that he had lost his fastball and that feeling was i think exacerbated by a series called the problem with john stewart uh, where he just didn't seem to have the level of comfort uh, that he does, or, or he was trying too hard to inject seriousness ahead of comedy. Um, but I, I don't know. I, watching him, let me just say this, that when I used to watch him, there was a period of time when I was watching him, and like a lot of people who work with their voices, I was starting to have some problem with my voice. And I actually had what's called a gran granuloma on my vocal cords, which is also very common. But when you get it and your voice isn't working anymore, you just start noticing how everybody else's voices are working. And what I noticed about Stewart, this is the, you know, the first incarnation, is how he did use his voice every possible. I mean, for a guy who's sitting at a desk, I mean, that's so confining, obviously, and so limiting of your possibilities. And just between waving his arms around and using about 27 different registers of his voice, up to and including just screams, you know, and then his unbelievably expressive face, the way that he can just, you know, twist his face into all kinds of sneers and, and monk scream horror, you know, uh, reaction shots and stuff like that. I just thought, this is a guy... He, you know, he's just he's not just throwing a fastball all the time. He's got all kinds of different stuff. And so 
and, and apologies for the long speech, Raquel, but I was sort of having the reaction of, yeah, he doesn't really do the screamy high energy stuff. Because as we get older, ideally, maybe we get a little bit more subtle. But watching him in the third episode when he's talking about the Middle East stuff, and he's just kind of using high registers of his voice, little sort of squeaks and falsettos and stuff, and, and just, you know, all kinds of facial reaction takes. I was sort of thinking, yeah, maybe he's maybe it's a little bit more nuanced these days. But I, I sense it's not playing that way for you. I mean, nuanced too, but... It... <laughs> Watching watching him talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict with that felt very strange. I mean, I might be bringing my own opinions into this, my own belief, but that kind of snark shtick feels really dissonant and weird when it it's coming to such a such a troubling, disturbing issue. And I get it, and I get that that's that is the purpose of it. I mean, he he is an entertainer, and I think he's a good entertainer. But I feel like this weird kind of dissonance. And on the one hand, okay. What do we want from him? Do we want to be entertained or do we want to feel like we're doing something? And I I feel a little bit like bringing back Jon Stewart, people want to feel like they're doing something by watching him and we're not. It, and that's okay. It's okay to have entertainment. It's okay to have political entertainment and political commentary. But I just felt very strange watching a man a, a tired man make kind of silly jokes about this really, really troubling issue, especially after an airman just set himself on fire in protest of it. And I, I just found myself feeling sort of lost and a little bit queasy. And I know that's not John Stewart's fault. He's doing his, his best, but I, I feel like maybe we as a society have, moved beyond the need for that in a way. I remember the Bush era feeling like he was the lone voice of sanity in the wilderness, and I kind of don't feel that anymore. But granted, I don't really watch much television. I don't watch network television. I'm I'm like a terribly addicted to the internet person instead, <laughs> which does offer you, I think, more more voices mm. of, in the wilderness, some, some of which are sane, most of which also are not, at least, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> uh, do you mind if I ask a question? Yeah. So, Raquel, what about, like, the discussion he had with the two journalists after? Because I think that's the... Well, also, guys, we're talking about a show on Comedy Central. You know what I mean? Like, but... Yeah. Also, um, yeah, I felt like you don't get that level of... Like, he he does, like, the shtick part, but then he had a dead serious policy conversation that was really thoughtful and, like, really nuanced after with two journalists who had opposing viewpoints. And I feel like you don't even get that level of serious TV, TV on, like broadcast television news so i i don't know i'd love to hear your thoughts on that i'm wondering if my issue with it is that i don't really watch political commentary on broadcast television yeah, anymore, we, anymore we, because yeah. it's so so bad I, i'm i know that compared to the rest of that he is definitely head and shoulders above that but i i don't encounter any of that at all so i i feel like i do, maybe this exists as an antidote to that and but it's an antidote to a problem that I don't really have, so it doesn't hit for me as much. Got yeah, it. Got yeah. It. I, you know, Sam, I, even in the old days, I always thought that, I mean, this show was often structured in the in the old days as, you know, there was this, the Stuart monologue with all throwing to clips and all kinds of stuff there at the top. Then usually either a field piece by one of the correspondents or maybe somebody like John Hodgman or somebody coming in to sit on the set and talk to him about something. But 
you know, in most nights, sooner or later, that would then become an interview that he was doing. And I always thought that was the weakest part of his game. I don't think he's an especially, at least I didn't think back then that he was an especially good interviewer. And it wasn't really what I tuned in for anyway. And I often was kind of done by then. I was like, okay, fine. Now, the thing that you're talking about, I should just set this up a little bit, is that, uh, yes, after he did his own monologue, his own take on on the Middle East situation, he brought in these two journalists and they talked for 20 minutes. Uh, it was It actually ran through two segments uh, of the show. And and I was looking, I watched the uh, the YouTube clip of it today, and, and I was looking at the comments, and the comments said things like, can you imagine a news channel hosting a conversation like this? No, not in the USA. So now it has become the responsibility of a comedy show. Uh, and, you know, the other people were talking about, you know, well, it's so weird that I click a comedy link to find the first real peace summit between Muslims and Jews ever. And this this comment, these comments go on at some length. Uh, and I, Sam, I find that very um, impressive. I do worry that, as the first commenter says, we're kind of outsourcing what news is supposed to do to comedy. John Oliver and his staff are better investigative reporters and more serious about what they dig up than an awful lot of so-called investigative reporters in the actual news business. And, and I think with Stewart, you know, I mean, he occasionally, he frequently will say, particularly in a 20-minute serious conversation like that one, I'm a comedian. <laughs> uh, but it, it's that distinction is so blurred at this point. And I'm, Sam, not even 100% sure how I feel about it. I mean, that's what I was saying. Like, if you watch, like, him interviewing the defense secretary on C-SPAN, like, a couple years ago, or him at Congress, or, like, his tools have gotten sharper. Like, that's the weird part, is that, like, that was a full policy conversation. Like, that wasn't, like big grand like it wasn't like arguing screaming like he he had a really nuanced conversation about something that like most news channels can't handle and i think that's the bit like his format works as the more ridiculous the world gets or as like gatekeepy and like silence culture as the news gets you know what i mean and, like right now we live in a time where like news and late night hosts are kind of scared to say stuff about you know biden being a part of the silent generation you know what i mean like they're they're uh they're scared to talk about israel versus palestine like there's obviously like really strong narratives that each news station has that prevents them from having like these really honest conversations and that's what i meant like it's really refreshing that even 10 years later john stewart is somehow this like middle ground where people can have like a conversation and it can be funny and it could be insightful and fact-based and it's just like it was a clip I wanted to send all the older people who I've been arguing with about Israel versus Palestine. I was like, just watch this. Like, they send me New York Times articles every day written by some, like, 60-year-old centrist. I'm like, nah, I'm good. Like, you should probably just watch Jon Stewart, which is crazy because it's a comedy show. You know, I was talking about the box office for Poor Things. The box office, so to speak, for Jon Stewart has been insane. Uh, the Daily Show got its highest ratings uh, that it's had since he left in 2015 on his first night there. And then those ratings started to go way up on the second show. I don't think we have these days because of cable and streaming and stuff like that. You, there are these ratings. That I think they're called something like Live Plus Three or something. But I don't think we have the Live Plus Three ratings for his third appearance. But it seems like the audience is building and is exciting 
excited to get him back. Although Raquel, that makes me feel a little bit bad for Trevor Noah because I, I really did like Trevor Noah. I thought he was very smart uh, and brought um, you know, a different vibe and was not maybe as extreme and not these big loud ululations like Stuart used to do. Um, but for some reason or other, and it may have to, to do with any number of factors, including race, um, Noah's show was never embraced the way that Stuart is even kind of one night a week these days. I have to wonder if part of the reason that Trevor Noah maybe didn't get the kind of response to is the media landscape changing. There are so many more sources of uh, political entertainment from from kind of a different perspective now. I mean, granted, a lot of that is online. A lot of that is through podcasting. But I mean, you've got The Daily Show, but you've also got that podcast, El Chapo Trap House, which is a very, I mean, much, much way further to the left, but very sharp and very funny and very entertaining and, and very insightful. And I wonder if that kind of sucks up a lot of that potential audience. I mean, people are going back to Jon Stewart because he's familiar. We we love him. We, you know, we watched him to feel a little more sane during the very, very strange Bush, uh, George W. Bush years. Um, and I think the media landscape then was a lot more different and and as we got into Trevor Noah's era it was just so much more scattered there's less of a monoculture so he was dealing with that too and it didn't feel like oh this is the only place where I can get this because now it's not there are like a hundred different places where you can get this now yeah she makes a great point uh Sam and and you know, it's also true that obviously an awful lot of people who cut their teeth uh, on the John Stewart show, starting with John Oliver and Stephen Colbert and Samantha Bee, they've all been able to take their swings uh, on their own with varying kinds of, of results. And one of the things that'll be interesting to see is if they keep up with this particular format, which is Stewart on Monday night and then some other host for three more nights. Um, I mean, so far, he seems to have a little bit of a coattail effect for those other hosts who come in, Jordan Klepper or Desi Lydic. Um And I, I'm, I'm wondering whether this, The Daily Show's format and appeal, which has been pretty sleepy. I mean, you know, Noah, Noah had his audience, you know, but then he left and they didn't seem to know how to replace him. And they tried a whole bunch of things. And then it looked like it might be Hassan Minaj. And, and then he had his problems, his very well-publicized problems, and that wasn't going to happen anymore. But you got to wonder about the franchise itself, because it's not a Monday night show, it's a weeknight show. I mean, I don't really wonder about it because I tuned out. If I'm going to be really honest, I never found Trevor Noah that funny, and I think that's the problem, is that he was really smart, he was really insightful, but it's on Comedy Central. You know what I mean? Like, mm. um, And I think that's kind of like, I think the format bodes well because it doesn't waste the cultural and like attention capital on store. Like I wouldn't want him to do five nights a week. I, it, it's a weird situation because I can't remember the last time like I waited for a cable show <laughs> where like I'm telling my dad like, hey, you should watch John's stories on at Monday at 11. You know how crazy that sounds like in the streaming era. Um, and especially with how bleak the late night like lineup is like it's like wide open um mm. i don't find any of those guys funny like i don't i haven't found any of those guys funny for years like it's just like low-hanging fruit and republican dumb fodder like it's just like mind-numbing stuff and that's and to the point of like there's a hundred other places yeah but they're not john stewart you know what i mean that's the problem is i can't think of like one other political network where i can have like a real honest discussion or there aren't like narratives or like there aren't like things that you just can't say on the news like I don't know, like what he said about Trump and Biden is all such fair game 
and I don't understand. Like seeing Keith Olbermann freak out on X yep. made me sleep so much better. Like I got great <laughs> REMs knowing that like <laughs> the, the liberals who like you know read the New York Times newsletter and gasp on a Sunday were freaking out because John Stewart said that an 81 year old man is 81 years old. Like that was incredible. Like get more mad, please. I, I'm feeding off the anger. You know, Sam, you always mention your parents on the show, and I, I just want to say that I'm so grateful that your parents came up in this segment and that you didn't go to see Poor Things with your mom, not knowing what it was going to be like. <laughs> um, anyway, we're going to take a little break here. Uh, we're going to come back. We're going to make some recommendations. Our technical producer today, as usual, is Cat Pastor, although I guess the maestro Dylan Reyes is in there somewhere doing something, because I'm getting messages from him on Slack as well. The uh, producer of this show is Jonathan McPence. As usual, our guests, well, you know our guests, it's Raquel Benedict and Sam Hattleman. They are going to make some recommendations to you right now. Raquel, why don't you get us started? Uh, well, I will go with the basic tone of poor things and recommend a series of short films that have just gotten onto the Criterion Channel streaming. It's uh, known as Seduce Me or Green Porno. It stars Isabella Rossellini acting out the mating lives of various animals, the very, very, very strange romantic lives of animals using paper mache and costumes. And it is completely bizarre and absolutely <laughs> delightful and grotesque and wonderful. Say, say the name again. How do people find this? Because well, people, are, people two, are gonna want people are gonna want this real bad. I can tell you. Well, there, there's actually like three of them. One is called Seduce Me. One is called Mamas. It's about like terrifying animal mamas that eat their young. And the third is called Green Porno. And it's like a series of short films where she say pretends to be an anglerfish or or a bed bug or something. What like she dresses up as them or like what do you what do you mean she dresses up as them and sort of acts out how they go about their business and we would okay. find this where it is on criterion criterion okay yeah i think you said that okay uh all yes. right we've got it we understand now uh now it's time <laughs> for you sam Hattleman. what are you going to recommend oh man mine feels so tame now uh i'm going <laughs> to recommend uh the vin staples show on netflix um if you guys aren't familiar vin staples is a long beach rapper probably one of the few public figures who I'm actually terrified about how smart he is. Um, if you guys are like looking to like find someone new who you can like watch any clip and become a fan, like he could have been a brain surgeon. He just happened to be a rapper and they gave him a show. And it's not like rap TV. Like it's like a genuinely fantastic abstract show. It's just like five episodes on Netflix. None of the episodes go over 20 minutes. Um, it's not Atlanta, but if you're into like abstract like funny nuanced shows like that that would be the one I, I really enjoyed it just like outside i'm not just like recommended a rapper made a tv show like this is like a good tv show uh and then the next one is something i've never uh I, this is a weird recommendation but i'm going to recommend uh the topicals faded under eye brightening clear eye mask um i'm a big skincare <laughs> guy uh, well if you want to be mistaken for mark ruffalo you've got to take care of your appearance right yeah, yeah, especially in 13 going on 30. That's the one I always get. But um, it's like these little pink eye things that you put under your eyes. And I, I don't know if anyone on the show has seen me, but I've had like lifelong eye bags. Um, and this is the only thing that has ever helped. So one more time, it is the topicals, faded, under eye brightening, and clearing eye mask. 
All right. And by the way, all of these recommendations will appear on Saturday in the newsletter, uh, which is our uh, fortnightly sort of newsletter about our show. And we always do some of the recommendations in there. So the problem is you have to get the newsletter. And the easiest way to do it, I think, is to send me an email, Colin at ctpublic.org, C-O-L-I-N at ctpublic.org, and I will sign you up for the newsletter. You should do this today, particularly if you had a little trouble writing down the, uh, you know, the eye care product that Sam just mentioned. It'll all be there in black and white for you. So I don't have anything really cool to recommend either, uh, although I am enjoying, on a fairly pedestrian level, uh, a series, and I think it's one of those cases w- which are increasingly common, where Netflix found somebody else's series and and put it up there and and is maybe getting more mileage out of it. They've done this a couple of times recently. I'm watching a series called Resident Alien, uh, and it stars Alan Tudyk, uh, who I enjoy anyway. He was terrific in Firefly's Wash, uh, and he was in Knight's Tale, uh, and he has this kind of elastic face, and he plays a uh, uh, an extraterrestrial who crash lands in uh, Colorado, uh, and he's been sent to Earth with the for the purpose of wiping out all of humankind, just eliminating the entire human species. But a lot of the stuff that he needed to do that broke or got lost in the crash, and now he's assumed the form of a, a local citizen, a doctor uh, in this town called Patience, Colorado. Uh, and he's trying to live his life undetected, but he's also trying to find all the stuff that he needs to kill all the people. Uh, and the only person who can see through the molecular re- uh, rearrangement he's done to disguise himself is a little boy who lives in the town, uh, who I think his name Max. And Max totally knows who he is and is always yelling at him. And he's often, if the two of them are alone, explaining to Max that he's going to kill Max. Uh, you know, as soon as he possibly can, he will find a way to kill Max. And the kid who's playing Max is terrific. The supporting cast is uh, kind of fun. Linda Hamilton has just made an appearance as a pretty, you know, militaristic uh, type of uh, general who's, uh, well, I guess all generals are implicitly militaristic. But anyway, you know, it's good to see Linda Hamilton again. Uh, and the show, I, it's not a masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination, but Tudyk does so much with his face. Uh, and he manages to take his sort of Alan Tudyk human face and make it look like an extraterrestrial. And of course, he's constantly trying to figure, learn how to laugh and things like that. And he's he's very funny at that too. All right, so that's called Resident Alien. You can see it on Netflix. Thanks to our wonderful panel, Raquel Benedict and Sam Hattleman. We will be back next week with a whole bunch of new shows. I'd tell you what they were, but that would ruin the surprise. I'll meet you down on a side across from St. Francis, past the conservatory, up the street from the seminary. You know, it's a very, very, very cool place to hang out. Yeah. <laughs> it's cozy, like a Cracker Barrel. Yeah, we all be laughing, talking, joking, talking about this and talking about that. And talk about everything as a matter of about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.